How's it going, Dr. Better? Good, everything's going fine. I hope it's going well. So I see you changed your background. Mine is still uh, the same <laughs> green screen. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm actually at my parents' house. So you may or may not uh, hear a bunch of commotion in the background. And those will be my nieces and my sister and mother. And there's a bunch of stuff going on. So we'll try to make this as as listenable as possible. So let's jump right in then. So before I start, just a quick disclaimer, anything you hear in this podcast is just the personal opinions of the speakers. They don't represent anyone else's opinions. In fact, I would say that my opinion doesn't represent Better's opinion and vice versa. You should also not take anything in this video as personalized investment advice. We're just saying our opinions for educational purposes only. I asked the uh, community at Practical Islamic Finance about what they'd like us to talk about. And one of the main things that people mentioned is yield farming. And I actually have not done yield farming myself. So even though I know it in theory, what it entails, I'm not familiar with yield farming myself in, in terms of practicality. And I do think that knowledge that comes from pr practicality is a lot deeper because there's a lot of subtleties that comes with actually doing something that you don't get from just reading about it. But I'll tell you what I do know. And then people who may you know, know better than me can let me know what they think. So yield farming, basically, it's like liquidity providing, which I addressed in a previous video. And my stance is that when you're engaged in liquidity providing and you're getting a, a fee for providing that liquidity, then I don't think that's necessarily uh, haram because you're actually playing the role of someone who is exchanging currency, you're providing a service and you're putting your money at risk. But when liquidity providing is actually for the purposes of funding loans, interest bearing loans, then obviously that's something that's haram. And yield farming includes that in its meaning, that is providing liquidity that is used to fund interest-bearing loans is something that is often entailed in yield farming. Obviously, that would be haram. So my position is that when you're providing liquidity for exchanges, for currencies to be exchanged with one another, you're subjecting your money to risk in the way of providing a service, a needed service for people. And that to me seems legitimate. However, providing liquidity for the purposes of funding loans, interest bearing loans, that's certainly something that is haram. So that's my two cents about it. I think, so I think the one critical point that you mentioned was, okay, you're providing the liquidity and that you consider a service, which I can agree to that. And then comes the point, okay, but you get a fee for it, which appears very much like interest, especially if it's a percentage uh, of what you put out. But then I would still say that still doesn't make it uh, riba, that doesn't make it interest. But the critical point, and that is something that you mentioned maybe implicitly that I want to highlight a bit and actually put a question mark on. You mentioned, yeah, but you're taking a risk, you're risk sharing, basically, which is a very important point for it being Sharia compliant. But then comes my question, are you really risk sharing in the sense that the contract does not guarantee you your money back? Or is, is the contract saying, yeah, you should get your money back. But of course, if the guy doesn't pay, then he's defaulted. So that is, that is maybe the question mark here, because that will be the critical divisive point between it being uh, riba or interest and being uh, 
completely okay or service as you mentioned yeah so absolutely in the in the case of providing liquidity for the purposes of facilitating exchanges in currencies then you don't have the right uh, to get your principal investment amount back in the case you're providing liquidity for the purposes of funding then i think the contract does give you the right to get your principal back in which yeah. case as you mentioned that would clearly be a violation would be rebuffed. Mm -hmm. so yield farming as just a, a broad definition you can't really say it's halal or haram you have to actually understand what you're earning money from. Are you providing liquidity for loans or are you providing liquidity for currency exchanges or something else that later gets encompassed in the term yield farming? Yeah, so I think that is the main point regarding it. Yeah, how comfortable you are with it. It really depends on, you really need to know what it's being done, what's being done with it. On a more general note, I would say, of course, as I say about all the crypto things, you have to take care because of it's newness. It is very new. And that means you never know when a crackdown will come on it. Like we saw in the case with China, you never know when some new regulations will pop up that might change things. Uh, and of course, you never know if it will be hacked or know about the security of it. it. It is rather good. And we're seeing better and better improvements in that sense. But generally, I think that you need to take into consideration that there is a, an extra bit of risk regarding the lack of regulation or the newness of it. And of course, how liquid it is in the sense that the more investors you get, the relatively better things are, the more street. Yeah. And that is something that you need to take into consideration. Not Nothing having to do with Sharia compliance here, but rather just a, a general idea. Take care. This is new. And that means you have a big opportunity to make a lot of money before a lot of investors are in it, but also a big risk that uh, you don't know how things will, will develop with time, whether countries will suddenly all... Uh, fight this or whether they'll really adopt it and push it and then you're going to be one of the pioneers who are in it that is the main risk that we see with cryptos in general and with yield farming as something deeper in the crypto world in specific absolutely yeah proceed with caution everything related to to DeFi right now is super new it's unregulated there's no customer service line that you can reach out to to say oh hey i had a problem typically there isn't uh, so you have to first off know what you're doing and not risk money that you can't afford to lose because this is still an industry that's in its infancy. It's exciting, has a lot of potential, Yes, but proceed with caution. The next topic that was in the news a lot this week was the, and this is deviating from what we typically talk about, but Afghanistan. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because it seems a common thread that with these sort of up and coming countries that are trying to establish themselves, you have creditors, foreign creditors that are sweeping in, they get the country indebted. And then they oftentimes they take collateral main pieces of infrastructure in that country and they use the indebted status of the country as leverage over the country to make the country follow whatever uh, policies they want. So I just hope that the people of Afghanistan are aware of this and especially considering the fact that they have a border with China. And China has a history of using this debt trap policy, wherein they get countries indebted and then they use that indebted status of the country to exert influence over it. Mm -hmm. So I just hope that people in Afghanistan are aware and they're able to save themselves from falling into that well, trap. I have to I have to then put the 
Yeah, the main, there's an elephant in the room here, Rakan, that where should they get the money? Remember, they need you need reconstruction for any reason, whether it's your yeah. war, whether it's, your, I don't know, a crisis. So we're looking at a civil war in Syria. We're looking at natural catastrophes elsewhere. And the reason that countries like China or maybe the IMF, the World Bank, provide these loans is because the countries need a significant amount of money. So I don't know what numbers we're talking about, how many zeros we're talking about here. Sure, if you could get those from... I don't know if Afghanistan can say, I'm opening my doors for yield farmers who want to invest their money and lend us lend us liquidity that we need um, because we're going to do a couple of projects with it and rebuild stuff. Yeah, that, that might work. Then you'd avoid the problem of borrowing from a country or an institution where then you have some strings attached. But if not, then we also have to be fair. Well, what are they going to do? I've seen a lot of countries, especially in the Middle East, that's, that's a lot of things that we study and that we are students and I show them how... At the moment, some countries have interest payments that surpass half of their tax revenue. So a country yeah. relies on tax revenue. If half your tax revenue is just paying the interest on your loans, well, you're never going to get out of this trap. And in the end, as you mentioned, you're really reliant on that country and you follow whatever instructions they give you. But if there is no other alternative and you need to rebuild. That's a problem. And that's where I think Muslims need to really innovate and spearhead the effort to find real solutions that give countries alternatives to indebting themselves when they need money. Yeah. This is really causing a lot of misery and, and lack of prosperity for so many people. And even in developed countries, the amount of indebtedness that the U.S. has to other countries, to individual investors, is really weighing on the average person in the United States in the form of you know, taxes and, and prices and, yeah, and everything. Austerity. So, and it's funny because the United States, the way that it actually earlier, the early settlers, typically people know about the injustices that were done to Native Americans, and mm -hmm. that's how land was uh, taken from them. But actually, a large percentage of the land that the early settlers were able to get from the Native Americans was from loans that they extended to the Native Americans in order to buy products from them. Okay. And they collateralized their land, yes. the Native Americans did. And then when the Native Americans defaulted on their loans, the settlers would take over that land. And so, subhanAllah, the, the wisdom of Islam in banning interest-bearing loans is very deep. And I think Muslims really, Muslims and, and population at large, doesn't really appreciate that as much as it should. Doesn't really appreciate the evil that can come from indebtedness. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. And I have no segue for this, by the way. <laughs> so I'm just going to move on straight to the next topic, which is passive investing versus um, active investing. I did actually a, a comparison of three of the major ETFs, three of the largest ETFs. Oh, I'm sorry. It's three of the largest funds that cater to Muslim investors. And the one fund that actually came ahead of the other two funds was the actively managed Amana fund, whereas the passively managed ETFs lagged. I didn't really expect this. I thought that after fees, probably the, the passively managed would, would outperform the actively managed. So this debate has no end, right? Passive versus active. That, that depends. So we have some research. Okay. It wasn't done on Islam, but it was done on green and, and environment friendly funds. And the theory is, of course, that yeah, if you have a well-diversified portfolio, then, then you're doing fine. 
But then if you say, I need to filter it for Sharia compliance, I need to filter it for environment friendliness, then you have a slightly smaller portfolio. And that means that you are less diversified. And what we have seen is that when you have such a restriction and you have a slightly smaller portfolio that is less diversified, then an active management is actually better in terms of performance. If you are running a a very large portfolio with a very broad uh, selection of stocks, then the passive tend to overperform. So that has been what we've seen. So that might really fit what you're saying that, well, if you have Sharia compliance, and that means you're restricting your investment to a couple of things, remember that um, from a purely economic perspective, if I am not investing in weapons and I'm not investing in alcohol, well, that is reducing my diversification. Maybe these things go up when the other things go down, the halal things go down. And if you are investing in both, then you might do better in a passive way. Uh, If you're not and you're only sticking with the halal things, then maybe an active manager will actually be able to squeeze out a few better strategies than a passive one in the limited. I would actually push back on the point of not investing in, let's say, alcohol or weapon companies is reducing diversification because diversification doesn't really come from the number of different industries you have or the number of different companies you have. True diversification comes from the diversification of factors that affect your holdings. Yeah. So if the if you have five companies that are affected by the same mm-hmm. factor, then it doesn't then it doesn't help versus having just one. There's no diversification. But if you actually are diversified across different factors, then that's true diversification because if something goes bad, you have other factors. True, but but taking the the weapons example, if a war comes along, then the stock market usually tanks, but then you find the weapons manufacturers uh, tend to do relatively well. So there is some diversification in that. So I, I think that generally, if you said, okay, companies, the stock market in general tends to do uh, poorly during wars, weapons do better. That's generally true. However, something like gold may do well during a war as well, mm-hmm. do even better. So regarding the passive versus active, what I would say about this is that passive only works because there are active investors. That's something that people don't fully appreciate. And if everyone became a passive investor, then you're going to have massive mispricings in the market. And many argue that, you know, the S&P is in that state right now, wherein companies, just because they're in the S&P and there's so many funds that follow the S&P are really inflated in price. So it's not one or the other. I think there's merit in both. And people need to just be aware that passive doesn't work without active being there. Yeah. So maybe I can give a small example there. What you can see. So if you're investing in a passive fund and then you decide to sell your, I don't know, let's say $1 million, what does that mean? That means your, your fund manager has to sell a portion of the position that you have in every single stock in that fund, even if not all of them are dropping. And that means just your exiting from a fund results in a lot of negative pressure on a lot of stocks that might not have any reason to drop. And that is the problem with the passive. But what I want to mention here, maybe on a side note is we're talking about passive or active in the fund level, but not in you as an investor. So what you're assuming here is that I am passive anyway. 
So I will choose a fund. Well, I choose an active or a passive one. I'm going to put my money there and I'm going to passively stand and watch. And that is why what I want to make as a difference here. This is not me actively investing and buying and selling every day and managing my portfolio in a more active manner, probably because I have uh, another job or a life or something. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in the end, we're talking about you investing. So you as a person investing in a passive way to, to get a second income, something like that, which is always a recommended thing but you're putting your money out there. And the question is, do you want to put it actively managed or do you want to put it passively managed? Uh, but not you actively investing. That is not the issue here. I suppose that would be another categorization where you're investing passively in active management exactly, <laughs> or actually being active. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Regarding the halal and haram categorization, one of the topics that I went over in my most recent video was the different measurements of debt that different funds use. So mm -hmm. some funds will use debt to equity, other funds will use debt to assets. Um, I'd like to focus on interest income and interest expense because after all, it's what is actually uh, prohibited. Debt per se is not in fact prohibited in Islam. What are your thoughts on that? For me, my experience, and I've been working with a good friend of mine on reviewing different, different or coming up with halal reports, composing halal reports for different companies, and you can see them on practicalislamicfinance.com. We're almost near 100 companies as of the date of this video. But my observation is that you really have to understand the story of the company in order to figure out, is this company really reliant in its mm -hmm. operations on interest-bearing debt or isn't it? What's your take on that? So uh, maybe the first point that you mentioned, which is debt itself is not a problem or it's not haram, that, that is completely correct. So if I know that an Islamic bank has 50%, 90% debt, but I know that means it is Sharia compliant debt, whether through a sukuk or through, I don't know, Qarada Hassan, which means they don't pay interest, then that cannot be non-Sharia compliant because they have a 90% debt to equity ratio. You're completely right. But the problem with our stock filtering is that we're assuming that US stocks or, or European stocks, when they talk about debt, they're talking about interest-bearing debt. And that is why uh, people look at the debt measurement. But you're completely right. If it is not interest-bearing debt, then that plays no role at all in the Sharia compliance. Coming to the point about measuring it and the reliance, they are trying to do in the Sharia criteria is to check the reliance. And the problem that they have is they use the very famously one-third or 30% mm. uh, threshold. They tell you more than 30% means that they're reliant, less than 30% means that they're not reliant. And maybe a, a side note here, regardless of how much interest they're paying on that loan, which is a bit, you know, uh, yeah, maybe a bit critical, uh, yeah. but they're looking purely at how much interest-bearing debt the company has and not how much interest they're paying on it. Now, where did they get this one-third uh, criteria? So why one-third? Why not more? Why not less? We actually don't have a good reason for that. The only thing that these scholars mention is it shouldn't be a majority. And then they say, what is a majority? Some people say a majority is over 50%. And then they rely on a famous hadith by the prophet, peace be upon him, uh, that has to do with how much is a person allowed to direct in his or her inheritance. So if you have an inheritance and you say, I don't want to simply leave it all by Sharia, I want to direct a portion of it to, I don't know, some charity. Uh, the prophet, peace be upon him, said that the hadith is a bit detailed, so I don't want to go through it. But what he says is that don't target more than a third. 
And the scholars say that obviously shows that the prophet believes that more than a third is a lot, and therefore less than a third is fine. The problem I see, he was talking clearly about inheritance, <laughs> whether that applies to the debt of a company. Yeah, but okay, I know that Sharia and fiqh depend on qiyas, and qiyas means that you try to see a similar scenario while well, he's talking about money, and here we're talking about money, well, we can use the same ratio. It's an argument, but whether you find it convincing or not, uh, yeah. the scholars would agree if you really uh, push down any interest-bearing debt should be bad, even 1% is, is bad, and that's it. But if they're going to say, we understand that this is a darura, that we're forced to this, this is necessary evil that we must take, then we really need to uh, have a better basis than just 30%, and we play with that without really looking at something more. Uh, tangible. I think that that is a point that has to be much better discussed through the scholars, and they don't really provide a lot of information there. Yeah, agreed. And I would say that there's a real push to standardize things. And I understand why there is this push, right? To to make things standard across different companies. And, and I get the affinity for that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, when you try to standardize things that really shouldn't be, uh, you come up with, you know, the wrong results. And I think that a lot of times these fixed numbers are causing people to make the wrong conclusions about different companies. As I mentioned, I really found no going around actually understanding the balance sheet, the financial statements of a company. And I'm trying to while we while we go through all these companies, identify different patterns, different categories of companies that maybe I can say, oh, in this category you provide you can use this rule, and this other category you can yeah. use this other rule. And just as an example of something that I found that is thought provoking, at least, is that you have this fixed limit for debt, the amount of debt, whether it's debt to equity, debt to assets, whatever measure you're using, but it's a fixed limit. You're applying this same limit to all companies, regardless of the industry, whether they're a manufacturing company, whether they're a service-based company, even though these different industries naturally have different capital needs. Maybe also the age of the company. So we know right. that startups tend to be more debt intensive than a company that's already broken, even than a company that's been on the market for I don't know how long. Yeah. There are different needs. So some nuances is definitely required. All right. Uh, so I actually didn't say this at the top of the at the top of our episode, but I'll say it now. So what we're going to try to do is cover the topics that we have slated and then at the end, answer any questions that you may have. So if you guys have any questions in the chat, maybe we can take one question uh, before we wrap up for the viewers right now. If you have a question. So someone had a question, small one. I think someone's saying, Salam, can I participate in Amana? I would go to the Amana website and check that out. I actually don't have any affiliation with Amana and they didn't pay me for my recent review. And I wanted to make sure that no one paid me for my review so that I was being as objective as possible. So you want to go to Amana, just Google Amana Growth Fund. You should be able to find that. Small point about that. We also have to be very fair. Uh, we, yeah, Rakan did not look at every single ETF or or fund that's out there. So he only took a sample that, and he, and he found that this was the the best one 
in that sample, but we're not saying that this is the best fund or that is the most best performance out there. Yeah, absolutely. In, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, for those who haven't seen the video, the three that I compared were uh, has ETF, ticker symbol HLAL, Sharia Portfolios ETF, ticker symbol SPUS, Amana Growth Fund, ticker symbol AMAGX. And I found based on the criteria that I put, Amana came out in the top spot, followed by Sharia Portfolio, followed by Wahid Invest. And you can see the details of my analysis in my uh, latest video. But past performance is not a guarantee Indicated. of future results. I compared the performances of these funds for the last year and three quarters, that performance may change. The, the ranking of that performance may change over the next period of time and things change. And as better mentioned, these are just three funds. We're not saying that one is a, the absolute winner. There are other funds that one can consider. In staking, there is a reward and API as per Islam, API is interest. You want to take that, Dr. Better? So, okay. Yeah, just like that. What does he mean by stacking? Uh, I, I think he means staking coins. But the point that he's bringing up is one that I've come across many times is that API is interest. No, oh. API is the rate basically the, per year, uh, the annual rate of return per year, yeah. basically, this is what it's referring to. So it could be referring to interest, could be referring to an investment return. Uh, exactly. if, it's looking, if it's looking into the past, it doesn't have to be used specifically for interest bearing debt. So understand what the API is actually referring to, as opposed to just saying, oh, I see an API, that means it's interest. Exactly. So I'll give a very brief example. If you own, I don't know, an apartment that costs uh, $100,000 and you are renting it out and you get a thousand per month and you're getting a 12,000 per year, that's 12% return. And if I call that a 12% API, I am not wrong. That is a 12% annual return, uh, but that is not interest. That is the rate of profit that you're getting. So the words API or what I've seen also quite often with a lot of people, as soon as they see the symbol of interest, yeah, not simple of simple of percent, the percentage symbol, then they immediately say that is interest, that is riba, that is haram. No, uh, you can calculate a percent out of everything. That doesn't tell you anything at all. Thank you so much, Dr. Better. Jazakallah khair for your time. Jazakumallah khair, all of our viewers. Thank you for tuning in. Inshallah, we'll be here uh, next week, same time. We hope uh, you tune in then. Until then, take care of yourself. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you all.